Hey everybody, this is So Heidi, and you're listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. We all know that the fashion industry is brutally competitive and it takes loads of hard work to get ahead. The problem is that everyone's secretive and tight-lipped about their ways. After working as a designer and educator for over a decade, I wanted to help break down those barriers and bring you valuable knowledge from industry experts, and this show is exactly where you'll find that. Whether you're trying to break into the fashion world, make yourself more marketable, launch your own label, or become a successful freelancer, we'll help you get ahead in the cutthroat fashion industry. This is episode 70 of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, and today I'm chatting with Aaron Luo. Aaron is the co-founder of an awesome brand called Cara. They create these beautiful luxury sports bags for women on the go that help them transition from work to exercise and beyond. And I love Aaron's story and all the amazing insights that he shares in this episode because it is so fundamental to the business, the marketing, the connection with your customer that brands need to build to create a cult following, which is exactly what they've done. So please don't get bored by some of the business minutia. I know it's so sexy to talk about the design and the the really sort of glamorous parts of the business, but at the foundation of any successful fashion brand is so much strategy in understanding your customer, figuring out exactly what they want, creating that, and then figuring out how to get it to them. And Kara and Aaron and his team have done an amazing job of doing exactly that. They've created an exceptional product and they've also done exceptionally well with business and marketing to figure out how to get that product into their customer's hands, make their customer absolutely love it and come back for more. I know you guys are going to love this episode so, so, so much. Now, as always, I will ask you if you have someone out there that you think would love listening to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast, please do us a favor and share it with them. The best way to spread the word is by you guys telling your friends, family, coworkers, whatever it is people who you're in Facebook groups with about the show. So if you can pause right now for 30 seconds, tell someone you know about the show, post it in a Facebook group, text it to a friend, whatever it is, I would really appreciate it. And I know the friends you have that are dying to get this knowledge would appreciate it as well. Now let's jump into the interview with Aaron. To access the show notes for today's episode, visit sfdnetwork.com slash 70. All right. Welcome, Aaron, to the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. Um, can you please start by introducing yourself and letting everybody know who you are and what you do in the fashion industry? Sure, sure. Thanks for having me, Heidi. So I'm Aaron Luo. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Cara. We're based in New York City. And, uh, you know, we call ourselves kind of a next generation high-end sports bag that are versatile, that can transition with her for inside and outside of the fitness studio. Awesome. Well, I love this and I love your line of bags because I um, I practice yoga almost daily and I am constantly on the hunt for the perfect bag to fit all my stuff but still look really cute, which is pretty much exactly what you guys make. So I'm really excited to hear about how you guys started, how you guys built, and how you grew to where you are today. So can we rewind a little bit and give us a little background of like, you know, where did you get started? Did you go to fashion school? Did you work in the industry? What's the backstory of, of how this all happened? Yeah, absolutely. I start with maybe my background um, and then kind of uh, progress into how, how the brand car has started. Um, but my, my so I come from finance, um, spent about 10 years in corporate finance in a number of different roles. And uh, my co-founder, Carmen Chen Wu, uh, she is a CFDA fashion designer. She went to Parsons. And I was a Jeffrey Bing um, award winner from the CFDA and always been in the kind of high-end fashion or accessory space. Um, even though my personal background didn't come from fashion, specifically my family actually has been in the manufacturing supply chain industry for fashion specifically for the last 20 years. So I kind of grew up, you know, with fashion, kind of it's almost in the blood. Um, And we work with, you know, from luxury brands all the way down to licensing brands. So we had a chance to see, you know, a wide spectrum of different brands um, over the last 20 years, um, which actually was really exciting to kind of grow up and learning about that. But, you know, as we think about how the brand was initially started, that was actually one of the reasons why kind of 
incentivize a little bit to think about starting brand Cara because we just feel that you know there's something missing in the handbag and the accessories markets in general mm-hmm. okay so, so you, yeah so keep going yeah so digging in a little deeper um you know there wasn't really one thing that kind of pushed us to start a brand um even though my background's in finance and manufacturing supply chain per se and carmen's background's in um product development design um and production we knew that um starting a fashion brand is very difficult right and it especially for handbag and accessory it's actually a very saturated space so we said if we start something it has to have a very unique point of view um it has to be very different it, the products have to have to be unique and 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 you know sustain the competition if you may and um you know on the product side one of the things we failed was that you know both carmen and i were very active and uh you know we kind of just struggled with not being able to find that one bag that is good looking that's high-end that's still versatile that can transition with us you know for when we go to equinox or for when we go to the gym and for when we go to the office or to the meeting for afterwards um you know when we did a little bit of market analysis and we work with a couple of consulting firms to help us kind of segment the market a little bit. We saw that specifically to the handbag market, either you have kind of the traditional sports brands, right? Um, so the Nike, the Adidas, the Lulu's, great bags, really functional, but you know, aesthetics and fashion and even the use, usage of the materials, you know, it's not really high end and, and, and to a certain extent, not really what they're going for. Um, and, and we feel that a lot of the bags, uh, specifically for those brands were very masculine, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of a one group of brands that we saw, mm-hmm. um, accessory size specifically. And then on the flip side, when we looked at the kind of the fashion brands, um, you know, we just felt that they were very well made, um, very exquisite as far as the materials and, and hardware and the, the leather and everything that were used. But we just felt that the utility aspect was lacking there. So we kind of found, um, you know, a little bit of a, a, a white space where, you know, it's functional, truly functional uh, with, you know, the right pockets, the right straps, um, with the right materials, but yet still looks very high end, very fashion. Um, so, so we just kind of felt that there's something missing in, in a particular market. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's one, one thing that kind of, made us think, hey, you know, perhaps there is an opportunity to start a brand, Cara, to actually come to the market with a unique product that truly infuses the both of the best worlds, like I mentioned before, but still keeping the prices below, let's say, $400. That was the initial intent. Um, so so it, that, that's one area. And then the second area was more a little bit more on the business side. Um, you know, having kind of a grow up in fashion and having uh, had interaction in the past with um, brands and, and servicing those brands on my family side um, from the supply chain manufacturing side, we just felt that the market's kind of stale, right? Like in terms of the, the you know, it, there were a lot of designers doing cool stuff, aesthetically speaking, but at the end of the day, we just felt that there was not a lot of innovation happening for the traditional established brands. When you look at the, uh, when we looked at kind of the emerging, you know, we call them native digital brands. Um, you know, so I'm thinking about Warby Parker. I'm thinking about Bonobos. I'm thinking mm-hmm. of Asper, right? Right. Um, you know, there were back when we first started the brand, there was a lot of excitement happening with a lot of these kind of native digital brands. But one interesting thing we saw was that they were really doing well. They were doing really well as far as, marketing and branding and customer service and be able to have kind of the two-way dialogue with their customers through their e-commerce. But then when we dig into the product a little bit, you know, the product were good, but wasn't a 10, right? So, and when you look at the background of the founders in terms of how everybody started, you know, none of them are fashion designers or none of them are product people. A lot of them are business background, perhaps marketing background, perhaps PR background that truly saw an opportunity in the category they're trying to disrupt and then went into it, coming in with great branding, PR, you know, customer service, all the things I just talked about, but wasn't necessarily leading with the product, right? Mm, so yeah. We said was, what if we do both, right? So we know, you know, we call ourselves kind of native digital brand 2.0. 
And, and what I meant with that was, you know, without being cheesy, it's more just kind of learn from the mothers and the fathers of the native digital brand 1.0, right? So learn from all the great branding they've done, you know, connecting with the millennial population, you know, kick-ass customer service, kind of coming with all that, right? Primarily do DTC, direct to consumer, but really kind of turn the things a little bit around by saying, what if we lead with design? What if we lead with product, right? And and kind of use that as really kind of the selling point, the central point, and then, you know, put all the native digital stuff that I just talked about before around the product. So that's kind of the, the thesis behind the brand, how we started, is to kind of taking the best of both worlds, both on the product side, so combining fashion with function to come out with truly unique product that nobody could touch us, um, and combine that with all the learnings we've had with native digital brands, um, such as the brands that I mentioned before. Cool. I love how, I mean, because I think it's so interesting. I think there are so many brands out there that are exactly what you said. They're really good at product, but then they really fumble when it comes to marketing and being strategic online. And then there's vice versa, right? Like you can be really good at marketing and your product can get ahead, but your product at the end of the day is... It's good, but it's like you said, it's not a 10 plus. So I love how you guys are hyper-focused on both of those really important aspects. Can you give me a timeline on like where where did this all start? And it sounds like you guys did quite a bit of extensive research before you really even decided, you know, what the product's going to be. You know, you did a lot of market analysis. Um, where are we at with, with the timeline on this? Yeah, so, so, you know, and we do come in with a little bit of uh, kind of a, uh, what we call unfair advantage. Um, and what I think that is, you know, Karma and I, besides coming in with kind of the background that I just described before, we did have a sourcing and production agency before that. Mm. And all for the agency when we first established was to help emerging small brands, right? That perhaps have been doing production in the US, perhaps have been doing small batch production, but are ready to take things to the next level and start scaling. So because of our production and manufacturing background, we had an agency essentially to help the smaller brands to scale, you know, by taking the production overseas and helping them to actually run this pledge in that way. So we had a lot of insights into kind of supply chain, design, sampling, you know, all the kind of, uh, I always say the the quote unquote less sexy stuff that happens behind. <laughs> um, but so so we so we we come in with a lot of knowledge and, and expertise in that area. But to answer your question, I think timeline wise, we started in 2014 ish, uh, but very much in a stealth mode. Right, okay. we really wanted to take this. In almost like in a very baby step, we want to be very thoughtful in terms of how we approach this. Um, it wasn't one thing that said, let's do it. It was a lot of months of market research. And, you know, we both are very active in the kind of fitness and wellness community in, the U in, in New York. So talking to the instructors, talking to the actual potential customers that we will have in the future and really understanding, you know, kind of what our needs are, right? So some anecdotic things that we we've done, you know, when we first started the brand is we literally, you know, Carmen and, and, and her small team literally sat in the Equinox juice bar in Soho for you know more than six months. And just people watching, you know, sometimes bothering their members a little bit, <laughs> but understanding what are they carrying? why were they carrying two bags? And do you like carrying two bags? And can we give you a bag that can actually carry both your workout stuff and your office stuff? And so there was a lot of kind of a, that kind of market analysis that's more one-off that went into it. And like I said before, we did work with a few kind of a macro level consultant type of companies to help us think at the macro level if we do want to scale, is there a big enough market? You know, Can we actually get into it? And, and what would that look like? So. Um, you know, we initially launched the brand with really one bag. Um, it still remains to be one of our best sellers. So it's our studio bag. Um, it's a bag that has a multi-strap um, uh, functionality to it, multi-strap mod modes to it. So you can wear as a backpack, as a crossbody, as a satchel. And it comes with a number of the compartments, one for the gym, one for the office, and one for tech. Um, you know, we didn't cut any corners as far as material usage. So because of our supply chain background and manufacturing background, you know, we reached out to some of the top mills um, around the world that 
has traditionally worked with luxury brands to actually source from them just because we wanted to, you know, kind of give more of a luxury product to our customers, but yet at the honest prices. So again, as, as you can imagine, a lot of work went into kind of that period. Um, so I would say probably 2014, um, the entire year we were very, very much in testing mode and stealth mode. And 2015, it's when we started to really start launching the brand. Okay. I am like so in love with the fact that you talked about sitting in the juice bar at Equinox and just talking to people for like six months because I'm a huge, huge, huge proponent of customer research. I do it very actively in my business. I talk to people all the time and it can be a very tough stage of business. It's not sexy. It's kind of boring. It can be awkward or intimidating or frustrating depending on your characteristics and your personality. But there is nothing more valuable than going out there and really talking to the end consumer about their needs and wants. So I love how you, I mean, it's so simple when you look at it. You're like, well, we went to where the people who would potentially be carrying our bags are hanging out and we just had conversations with them. I mean, at the end of the day, it's as simple as that. Um, I mean, it takes time and, and energy to do it. So I love how, how you you guys really hyper-focused on figuring out exactly what the market needed and what your end customer needed and if there was really a valid opportunity to go after that. Um, so that's Absolutely. great. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, to your point, it, it, it's tough, right? Because, you know, there's nothing you love more uh, personally as a kind of business background. There's nothing I love more to go out there and just get a list or kind of a one time deal, get some sort of a database or some sort of analysis and, and, and just kind of uh, go with that. Um, but to your point, there's nothing more powerful than sitting down with a mother of two that has to juggle through work and babies and work out and and sitting down with her and asking her hey you know what what's can we improve your life you yeah. know I, about bags and fashion like you know you go you go through so much in the day especially in a city like new york you know you have to juggle through so much you know if we were come out with something you know in the accessory space like what would what would that be? And yeah. and hearing the first-hand feedback from your customer or potential customer, it's, it's really powerful. And, and by the way, needless to say, you know, all those people, um, you know, a, a good chunk of them ended up being a care customer once we launched the brand, right? Because mm -hmm. they they um, they feel like, oh, yeah, I spoke to Carmen. Oh, I spoke to Aaron. You know, they listened to me, yeah. you know, and give exactly what they wanted at the end of the day. But you know, we still listen to them and, and listen to their needs. So yeah, very powerful. I totally agree with you. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's, I think it's a tough stage because it's everyone's so antsy to just create this beautiful design they have in their head that they think is absolutely perfect. And it may be absolutely perfect, but you have to get, it has to be a two-way street. You have to get that feedback from the customer um, uh, just to make it that much better. So very cool. I could talk customer research all day long with you, but we won't do that and bore the listeners. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about you know how you funded this and you don't have to share any numbers but but um i i i'm under the impression you've you've built and grown without any vc infusion um venture capital uh so can you talk a little bit about you know how you kind of got this off the ground because starting a fashion brand is not cheap it's not yeah it's not. and and i'm very passionate about this topic um, because, you know, coming from finance and th that really was the first thing we thought about, right? It's like, okay, we came out with a PL, we know the budget, we know what it's going to take to launch a fashion brand to your point, it's not cheap. And, uh, so, you know, we, we definitely looked at all of our alternatives, including venture capital. And, you know, I, so a couple of different things. Um, first of all, I believe that when you start a product company or a fashion brand specifically, I think VC might not be the best fit. And and, and that has a huge caveat to it, right? Because I think if you are starting a, a, a brand or a product company, I would say more than the brand, I think I can definitely see perhaps VC funding might be enticing. The truth is at the end of the day with VC funding, they're looking for scale, right? If you think about what venture capitals kind of their goals and objectives are. They want to go in and make an investment in something, whether it's tech or whether it's product. And they want to be able to scale very quick with their money, mm -hmm. right? With brands, the challenge with that is once you take the money, you're obligated to scale and grow really quick. 
but brand takes time to grow, right? It's not like a tech where you can scale relatively quick if you have a good product or a good uh, you're meeting certain needs. With brand, you know, unless you truly come up with a product that has some technology edge to it, it's really hard to grow, and and it's really hard, I think, to scale in a very short period of time. So, so what what that happens essentially, especially if you're a direct to consumer brand, um, if you start taking venture capital money, VC money, essentially you're obligated to grow through customer acquisition, and that means act online ad and digital ad. And if your revenue can keep up with the spending, uh, which means basically you are not becoming profitable, that means that you just get, you have to keep raising. You have to always go out there and raise and raise. And it just becomes a little bit of a vicious cycle, right? And I don't I don't mean to bore your listeners in terms of kind of going to like a VC funding 101, but you know, for us, we just kind of felt that, you know, we're in the business of building a brand. I'm not in the business of fundraising, right? So, and for, for a smaller brand where you have limited resources, you have to make a tough choice of do you want to focus on raising money or you want to focus on coming out with awesome products and, and building a brand, right? And, and for us, we kind of decided that, you know what, we're spending way too much time in terms of fundraise. We were getting um, terms sheets we were getting proposed deals on the table um but obviously at early stages you know your valuation as a brand is going to be very small right oh, so, so you did you did start going after it initially you were kind of exploring the option for sure we explore everything okay. i mean when you brand you have to you have to kind of post the market and see what's out there in terms of available funding right uh-huh. what is vc credit card loans, you mean, you name it, right? So, you know, and, and you'll be doing a disservice to yourself if you don't understand what's out there, right? Yeah. Uh, when you first started the brand. But yeah, VC funding, we just kind of felt that, you know, not only when you start, they're going to give you really low valuations. Again, you know, they, you're going to be, be measured in a very different way, right? Once you start taking venture capital investments. Um, so we, we, did not, um, we did not go that route. Uh, for us, we were fortunate enough to um, find a family office, um, which is also an investment tool, but I think they have a very different KPIs and very different metrics. So they kind of came in and, and, and definitely helped us to grow. And obviously, we bootstrap as much as we can. So so it's, it's a very tricky question because, you know, truly to start with a brand, um, you know, you have to ask yourself the question. Um, how I'm gonna fund this, and and certainly you can get by bootstrapping 100% in the beginning. But at one point, if you start thinking about scaling, um, other source, you know, of funding has to be considered, including loans, including taking the debt, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, so again, I, you know, we we I'm not saying that VC funding is not good for starting brands. There's plenty of brands currently in the market space that is backed by VC, right? I mean, Bonobos, which was recently acquired by Walmart, you know, built an entire business based on VC funding. Same thing with um, other brands like Everlane, brands like Warby Parker, Casper. So there's plenty of examples um, of brands that has taken VC money to grow their business. I think time will tell. Uh, whether that's a sustainable model in the long run, because I think a lot of these brands, relatively speaking, are still fairly young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kind of that's the that's the journey we took in terms of how the things we we thought about. Okay, so you so you mentioned something. You said family office and yep. then bootstrapping. What's family office? So family office is essentially um, a group of individuals that's managed by a fund manager, by a money manager. So you know, usually they they are. It is institutional money to a certain extent, um, but their KPI is a lot more relaxed. Um, you know, they are looking. So, you know, the, perhaps the best way to think about it is almost like a group of angel angel investors okay. that come there, pull up a, a money, give it to one group of people to manage their money, and then that group of people is the one who decides to you know invest in different vehicles, including like investing in the company, for example. Okay. Uh, and not so, to get too business nerdy, KPIs, key performance indicators, um, I don't think many listeners out there, I shouldn't say this, but perhaps some will. Give me a quick, give me your quick one sentence on that, because I understand it, but I think a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? KPI indicate, like, what is this? 
So KPIs is basically key performance uh, indicators, um, just a set of you know standard metrics that um, uh, investors will kind of uh, hold you accountable for, right? Once they they invest in your money or once they take their money. So uh, things such as revenue, cash flow, profitability, um, you know, customer acquisition cost, CAC, right. uh, customer lifetime cost, you know, so. Um, Oh, sorry, customer um, uh, lifetime value. So there's a number of different KPIs or indicators or metrics, essentially, that you wouldn't be held accountable for. And and as I said before, they vary depending on who you're taking the money from, right? Like I said before, venture capital, if you take money from VCs, um, they expect you to grow really, really fast. Um, versus if you take money from angel investors, um, they still want return on their money, but at the end of the day, they're betting on you as the founder and they're betting on almost like a vision, right? So mm -hmm. it is definitely there, but you know, at the end of the day, they are betting on growing together with you. So I think they're a lot more relaxed. I find at least personally, they're a lot more relaxed with kind of their KPIs. Of course, you still have to show performance. You still have to show you're growing, you're turning and you're Grow, you know, you are marching towards the end goal, but um, we just felt that we were much more aligned with angel investors um, versus going out there and, and taking money from like an institution like a venture capital. I understand. Okay, thank you for that explanation. I just want to make it clear for people who might not have as much as a business or financial savvy. Um, so. I also want to talk about, you said you mentioned, uh, you, you launched with one bag that has still to this day been one of your greatest sellers. And I love that so much because it's something I've talked about with a lot of people on the show. And I've heard a lot of failure stories of people who launch with, you know, 12 or 24 pieces um, versus just getting really focused on one piece, making that an exceptional design and pushing that. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, why you guys chose to do that and how, you know, maybe some, what some of the pros and cons were um, with going into into your brand using that strategy? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's again, another good question. And I don't think there's a right answer to it. Um, I think it goes back a little bit in terms of what kind of brand that you're trying to build, right? Um, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of always star you know, testing, right? Coming from um, kind of Fortune 500 company, one of the things we always talked about back in my old job is, you know, how do you t kind of take the lean approach, right, when you think about business? And what that translates to essentially is how do you test cheap, test quick, and fail quick? So for us, you know, when we first started the brand with one product, was really kind of test and see if the market really resonates with what we're trying to sell, what we're mm -hmm. trying to um, so that's how, that's kind of our initial intention in terms of starting with one product. And of course, if you go to our website, um, we have, um, a, um, a bigger assortment, but having said that, I personally think that unless you're truly a lifestyle, and by the way, you can't start a brand as a lifestyle, you have to grow almost into it. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, as a young brand, I'm always a big believer of being focused and being good at one thing but really really good at it versus going out there and start introducing a number of different categories that might dilute the kind of your brand positioning or your value proposition mm -hmm. so 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 that's kind of a little bit of background you know i think there's a lot to be said about expansion of skews and expansion of categories and again if you are aspiring to build a lifestyle brand at the end of the day, sure, your 10-year strategy might look something more like, you know, a bigger assortment. But I think, you know, as you start growing, especially in the beginning, I think it is wiser to focus a little more and, you know, kind of pick one or two categories or one category by one or two SKUs and be really good at that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's some, you know, downsides to it because again you know what that means is you have to constantly go out there and find new customers right there's not a lot of um repeat customers if you may if you selling only one product right mm -hmm. because and depending on what you sell right if if you product that you sell does have um some certain repeatability behind it i'm more thinking consumables right sure then then great uh, but if you're selling fashion especially accessories for example 
you know, it's not like everybody's going to be buying a new pair of shoes or a bag or, you know, whatever you're selling, you know, that constantly, right? So if you have a small assortment, you just have to think about, okay, how I'm going to go constantly chase new customers because I can't count on existing customers to come back for repeat business. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, pros and cons to both. Um, so I think, again, no perfect answer. You just have to ask yourself a little bit. I think at the end of the day, what kind of brand do you want to build? Yeah. So, okay, so you, you got your funding, you did all the market research, you really dialed in what the design should be, and then you launched with one one bag. What did that launch look like? Like, do you just put up a website and people automatically come? Like, talk a little bit about how you initially kick-started all of this and promoted and, and got people to your site to sell, or did you do pop-up shops? Like, what, what was that whole period like of building your customer base and getting those first, second, third, 300, 500, all these sales through the doors. Yeah, yeah. So the site was really, really simple. You know, it was a really simple site. Uh, you know, my our head of e-commerce keeps reminding me that, uh, you know, by the time people come to your site, more or less they already decided, at least early stages, right? They more or less they already decided whether they want to buy or not. Um, later on, it's a different strategy. I think, you know, that, that statement I just said is not true once you become slightly more mature business, but early stages, you know, find getting an awesome website it's 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 it doesn't it doesn't doesn't do anything uh, at least that uh, we, we didn't think so so we put up a very simple site i think for us really it was a combination of um reach now so this is the hard work i talked about before right so go to um where we know our customers are so whether it is in the office setting you know uh, where we know our customers either work at or you know frequent um, or go to the gym um, so go to the gym workout spots where we know she's gonna be there so it's it's really much just kind of one-on-one through that kind of interaction to start promoting the product um, I think you know we did want we did know that you know we we didn't want to do wholesale, um, at least from the get-go, but we wanted to have some strategic partners. So we're fortunate enough to work with some really awesome partners such as Equinox from very early stages um, in order to kind of get that brand recognition um, and, and then start getting some of the scale. And, and so that's kind of very much in the early stages. And I wish I can tell you that we had kind of a roadmap, and we did to a certain extent, but very much at a high level. You know, I think for the first year or so when you start a brand, you know, we we knew very much it's going to be a touch and go, right? You test one thing, see if it works. If it doesn't, you move on. Uh, or if it does, you double down. So we found pop-up worked really well. Um, wasn't cheap always, but we felt that it gave us kind of a, an opportunity to be closer to our customers. Um, like I said, um, you know, having one or two key partners um, from the wholesale standpoint, definitely helped us in the beginning, especially when you have a good product like ours that really was missing from the market. Um, and then, and then you know, from there, you know, we started to actually start building out the website, right? So the digital marketing and the e-commerce play didn't really come in play really after one year. But once once you start getting certain mass in terms of your customer base, things are just starting to turn. So so that's kind of a little bit of the beginning the beginning journey, what that looked like. Okay, so partnering with some some key businesses, like like where your customers are already hanging out. Um, and then, what, can you talk a little bit more about the, what you said at the beginning, you made the comment, I think it was something to the extent of like, you know, we just went out and like talked to our, like you, you did a lot of legwork in terms of getting the customers face to face. Like what did, the, I, I wanna hear a little bit more, what did that actually look like? So like if I'm a brand out here listening and I've got all this product and I'm like, okay, I have to sell this. Like no one's coming to my website. What what am I, what, do you, what did you do with that again? Yeah, so you basically need to understand who, who she is, right? For us, you know, we're a woman's brand. So we, we, we basically just sat down and say, who is she and where does she go? And we just kind of went where she was, right? So, for example, I talked about gyms. So we know at the beginning, you know, again, the, the product, you know, we always say it, it's a bag that can transition with you for inside and outside the fitness studio. At the end of the day, our product is really meant for on the girl on the go, for, you know, the girl on the motion. Um, even though we, we always 
that were rooted in sport. So to that point, the rooted in sport part, we knew that she would frequent all the gyms and all the high-end workout spots that we know, mm-hmm. right? It's reaching out to those locations and say, can we come in and do some kind of a trunk show? Mm, okay. Can we, can we, you know, we obviously didn't put a tent outside of the location and actually start promoting, but, um, you know, it's reaching out to the locations where she frequents and, and obviously going to those establishments and say, is there anything that we can work on together? You know, now that worked, I think, for us mainly because, honestly, we've, the market just didn't have what we were offering. So I think the answer was immediate yes. So that goes back a little bit to what I was saying before, that you got to go to the market with a solid product pr- proposition. Otherwise, you know, I think whatever you do, I think people are just going to pay less attention to what you're trying to say. But for us, like I said, because the product is really unique and truly different than what's out there, I think we immediately got feedback from the establishment. I mean, I can give you some examples of, you know, the owners of those little studios that we reached out to. And it's like, oh, my God, sure. And by the way, I want one for myself. Because, <laughs> right? It's very easy convincing, right? Yeah. Very, you know, like, there's no, hey, you know, do me a favor. And there's none of that, right? It's like, yeah. oh, I love it. Of course, I want my customers to know about you, you know, like. So, so that's how that's how things things start rolling. Now, that's that's a specific example of someone like us, kind of uh, specifically to who we are as a brand and kind of how we went after her. But I think in general, for your listeners, it goes back to really understanding who she is. You know, at least having a thesis of who she is. It might not turn out to be who she really is because sometimes there's a discrepancy between who you target and who actually buys. Uh, but at least having the thesis of who she is and really go after where she lives to a certain extent mm-hmm. and trying to actually expose the brand in front of her. Yeah. And I, I mean, I love that little story there so much because it's like the, the, all the time that you spent doing the customer and market research and figuring out who she is, what's missing from her life, how can you make something that fills a category that, that she can't currently fill you spend the time to build that amazingly strong and powerful foundation to create this exceptional product. And there's the, the, the proof you go to the studio owner and the studio owner's like, of course, because this doesn't exist and they would know, right. They're the customer. And then they want one too. Like that's such a beautiful story. I love it so much. Um, Okay, so, so cool. So very tangible advice there in terms of approaching places where she might hang out and seeing if you can do some type of collaborative trunk show or, you know, a little pop-up out front. Um, Really cool. Uh, I'd love to talk, well, there's two things. Um, Probably the most, what makes sense in the most order here is you guys have a partnership with Athleta um, to, to do their bag designs. Can you talk a little bit about how that relationship started and what that looks like in terms of building your business. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and we are so, um, happy and, 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 you know, privileged to a certain extent to be working with a brand like Athleta in general, I think for us, um, so a couple of different things, Uh, you know, we, the truth is we've had a number of different brands approaching us before Athleta, um, that wanted to do some sort of a collaboration. And, um, you know, being a smaller brand and being a small team, even though our natural instinct is to say yes to everyone, we have to be very careful in terms of picking the right partner, just because as a small business or as a small brand, if you don't know how or don't have truly the expertise to, you know, bring what you need to the table, it's a formula for, for fail, right? So for failure. So we, we, we said yes to some initiatives. We said no to a lot of partnership, like I mentioned before, but... You know, with Athleta, actually, it was uh, it really was a match made in heaven, right? In the sense that we felt very, very identified with their brand uh, in terms of the brand identity, right? It's all about body positivity. It's all about woman empowerment. It's all about inclusiveness, you know, and um, which is really kind of a niche, you know, if you kind of peel the layers of onion behind our brand, really kind of the 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 spirit, I would say, right? The 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 
the motive, the spirit of, of Kara behind the brand really is about making her life better and, and empowering her so she can be whoever she wants to be. So, so we immediately feel, you know, a natural attraction to the brand. Um, you know, the team is marvelous to work with. And, and, you know, this is another example of, I think, you know, they were looking to really bring some partner in to help them amp up their, um, their handbag and accessories game. And, um, you know, we, because kind of, we started a little early in, in 2013 and truly when it comes to high end functional bags that are well priced, you know, we, we, we are right up there at this point. Um, you know, it was a very natural conversation, I think, between us in terms of, uh, you know, can we collaborate? Can we work together? Can we grow the business and come out with a category to help them actually come out with this awesome collection of handbags? So yeah, so that's kind of a little bit of a, of a background and, um, you know, we learned a ton, I think, from each other. You know, we, we are a designer-led brand, like I mentioned before, um, and Athleta is really strong when it comes to merchandising, right? So, you know, we're learning a ton from them as far as merchandising and, of course, you know, they're getting all of the design expertise and, and aesthetics um, that comes with our products and comes with Carmen and her team. So. So yeah, it's it's been it's been a great partnership. Um, you know, partnerships are hard; they're very difficult to <laughs> come by, and they're very difficult to do, um, just because there's so many factors um, involved in the equation. We're just very blessed that I think you know this is an awesome partnership that we've had um, in the last year. Yeah, and so now they approached you. Did I hear that right? Yeah. So it, it was um, it was a little bit of a mutual um, approach to a certain extent. Uh, their team and I, we coincide in a lot of different speaking engagements. Uh, uh, okay. So we chatted there a little bit. At the same time, and this might be fade, might not be, but you know, their merchandising team has been starting to talk to our design team. So I think it's not really one thing. It really is kind of a bunch of different things happening and to a point where we say, hey, let's collaborate. Right. And it sounds like it happened very organically, like a lot of the best relationships do. You guys both happen to be at the same engagement, speaking, what have you. Conversation started, time went on, you kept talking, and it grew into this amazing relationship. Yeah, you know, and, and this is where I would say that as you know, and and if you listen, you have listeners out there that are brands that are looking to grow or maybe strike some kind of partnership. I have to say, uh, at least from personal experience, one way pitching usually doesn't work. Mm. You know, and and usually ha it's it's the smaller brands that want to collaborate with the bigger brands. Again. If it's that one-way streak, usually it's slightly harder to pull off versus, you know, you truly have to almost nurture certain relationships so they can happen organically, right? Yeah. Um, so, so it, it, you know, it's a little tricky because, like I said, I think, you know, I wish I can share a, a silver bullet and say, hey, look, you know, go after them, email them, stalk them, you know, and, and, and you know, try to... Um, kind of in, uh, start a conversation that way, if you may. But, you know, for us, honestly, we, we, we actually weren't really trying to strike any partnership. We were just trying to come up with the best product we could, with the best customer service, with the best customer experience and shopping experience that we can. So it's more us focusing on us building, you know, a work versus, hey, you know, how do I think about, coming out with the right pitch or the right deck to pitch to certain brands, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, and I, I mean, the importance of relationships is something that, you know, there's there's tons of books and resources out there on it. Um, but I think, you know, your specific example is just another great point that, like, you can't just sit behind the, you know, the computer screen making pitch decks and sending them out to a bunch of people. You have to be out there having those conversations in real life, building the rapport, um, creating some type of two-way dialogue, and then these things will organically develop and grow. So I love that. Um, so congratulations on that, and, and I, I'm sure it was still, you know, like everything, it's still a lot of work, and it takes time to build and grow, um, but that's a really amazing partnership. I'm a big fan of Athleta, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, we, we're, we're so happy with, uh, with that partnership, yeah. um, definitely. Awesome. Um, 
I also would love to talk a little bit about your guys' price points. Um, they're not on the low side. Your bags range anywhere from like roughly three to eight hundred dollars. Um, and something I hear from people so often is, you know, how am I supposed to build this amazing product using great fabrics, great trims, sustainable, you know, all these these things that people want and they say they want, but then they come back with, but the customer just wants something really cheap. Clearly, there is a customer out there that doesn't want something really cheap, that is willing to pay the right price for the right quality for the right product. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, was that an uphill battle or did, you know, what was your thought process behind building a higher price point ba- uh, brand? Because I, I just, I hear so often, and that and maybe it's just their own mindset of like, well, I can't build something great because the customer's not willing to pay. Clearly, that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it goes back to value proposition. You know, I think it's really understanding what is your value prop. Once you unlock your value proposition, that's when you can think through, am I priced correctly to service her needs, right? Um, so, so for us, yes, it is sitting more in the contemporary price point, which is a very tough market to be. But at the same time, you know, our angle, our approach has always been telling her what is she's really getting, you know, for what she's paying, right? So it's not just the dollar amount compared with all the other product within the same category. It's more, hey, is this going to actually do more than our competitors or some other brands in the same price point? So it's, so th- definitely there's the customer education aspect to it in terms of explaining, not, not just kind of throwing a number out there and like, hey, this is X $400, but why, why do we price the way we did? And by the way, you know, any comparable product of the same quality, same material, same design um, will actually cost close to $1,000. We know this because we come from supply chain manufacturing, because we work with brand, bigger brands that has used the same factories, right? So so again, part of it's education and customer um, um, you know, product knowledge, if you may. Um, I, I will say though, I think as you scale, it is difficult to scale if you price um, not competitively. And you know, the way I think about it is at one point you have to make a bet. Right. You have to make a bet at one point and say, okay, you know, we have test a certain thing, whatever you're testing, right? For us, it was testing kind of the, the $400 price range. Um, you know, we started to ask our customers, would you pay more? Would you pay less? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, so, you know, once you get through the initial hurdle of customer education, educating her of your value proposition, I think the next step is a little bit of an unknown. You got to kind of touch and go in, and ask your current existing customers, would you do this if I did that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have to say, back to my earlier point, that having a higher price point item is harder to scale, you know, unless you're willing to pumping a lot of marketing dollars and, and PR dollars. Um, so, so that's something to think about. That's something we think about constantly. I don't have the right answer yet at this point, but you know, the truth is, like I said, for us doing the right customer education and having the right customer relationship um, has allowed us to scale quite rapidly um, in the last three years. Um, but, you know, once again, if you truly think about kind of more scale at the global level, you got to think about what's the right price point. And, and I think it's something we're still wrestling with. You know? Yeah, I understand. Um, and I love what you said in terms of like continuing to have that dialogue with your customer. You know, you said you started at like maybe the, the $400 price point and then you continued to do that research and to just keep having conversations with her of, you know, would, you know, would you be willing to pay for something of this caliber? You know, what else are you looking for? Um, that customer research, those engagements, they never end. It's ongoing for the lifetime of your brand and your business because the customer changes, their needs change, you know, life changes, technology changes. And so continuing to have those conversations allows you to keep up with her needs and continue to offer great products that she still wants. And uh, honestly, that that relationship, is, it's, it's, it's gold, right? Uh, yeah. To me, that, that's the, the hardest part to obtain. But once you get it, mm-hmm. it's like honeycomb, right? Yeah. Because it's... 
you know, at the end of the day, you, what you want to build and what we think we have built over time, it's a cult following, mm-hmm. right? It's a customer that really buys our product first because of our product itself, but now it's the everything that comes with it, right? So it's the branding, it's the experience, it's the service. And um, to be able to have that kind of trust, once you build that trust with the customers, mm-hmm. up. they will open up and tell you everything <laughs> they know, right? They will. And, and, and to your point, it's not the easiest thing to do because it comes with CRM system investments. You know, it comes with other platforms that we use to help us um, kind of facilitate that conversation with her. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, we have brands like Athleta reaching out to us, asking us to, to work together, partially because of our product, but partially because we have a cult follower that actually they want to tap into as well. Right. So. Yeah. There's, there's the, but to your point, you know, nurture your customer base. It, sometimes we forget once the sale, um, their base. You know, that's that's one thing we constantly talk about is how do we, how do we acquire new customers? Of course, but you know, how do we, how do we almost reward the existing customers because who she is? You know. Yeah. Oh man, you and I would be fast friends. We could talk customer research all day long. I, I, I have a very, very, very similar relationship with my audience, and um, it is. It takes time to build, and it can sometimes be exhausting to continue to have those dialogues. But like you said, it does help to build a cult following, um, in a very healthy way. Saying cult following. Um, so I love that so much. Um, this has been so much fun to chat with you. I'd, I'd love to get one more piece of insight and wisdom from you. I know you come from a family that has, you know, manufacturing and, and sourcing and, it's, and, and the industry and its blood, and you had some of this experience before. But one of the biggest hurdles for a lot of the startup brands I talked with is that sourcing and that finding the right partnerships in factories um, and suppliers that that they can trust. So do you have any bits of advice or suggestions to those people out there listening who may be going through that right now, what you what you would tell them to do? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tough one. You know, it's often is, you know, for customers or for the market, when you look at outside in, Often it's the less sexy part, right? Because it's it's not marketing, it's not PR, it's not fancy uh, photo shoots or or, or, lo- or grand events. But um, you gotta get that right. You know, for me, again, we do come from that world, so I'm a little biased when I say this. But you know, it's 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 fifty percent of the equation for sure, if mm-hmm. not more. Mm-hmm. It's get it right as a brand. If you don't have your manufacturing, sourcing, and supply chain done right, you don't have a brand. You know, you, you cannot scale and um, it's hard it's hard because you know for for American fashion designers right when you first start again depending on kind of what you're making as far as your your categories so it's a little different if you're making t-shirts and if you're making shoes or, or handbags um, going overseas is becoming to a certain extent a lot more difficult um, and, and, you know, I'm not just thinking about China, I'm thinking about South America, I'm thinking about Southeast Asia. And uh, just because, you know, they expect certain volumes, and not only volumes, you are sort of expected to actually be there on the ground to work with them. And it's in your best interest to actually do so. So I, I think, you know, depending on the stage that you're in, I would say first, just test your market, you know, uh, in the beginning, you probably might just have to buy a bullet and find different ways to manufacture things locally um, just to test and just to get comfortable that you have something going, right? That you have the right audience, you have the right customers, that you have the right brand positioning or value proposition. I think once you're starting to scale, and that's an intimate question that you have to ask yourself, what's that point look like, right? But once you have once you hit that point of inflation to a certain extent, right, to, to know that, hey, I'm ready to scale, you have to start looking overseas. And, and gosh, I mean, there's so many ways that you can go about that, right? You can, you know, there's agencies that you can work out there. You can directly go yourself. There are platforms that exist today that you can actually leverage to seek for the right factories. None of them is the right answer. All of them have some plus and a lot of minuses. Um, but you know the one thing is, I would say, don't try to go there too early because you, you, you 
truly speaking, you don't have the expertise or the budget to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you, but do set some goals internally and say, once I hit this, I need to start thinking about my supply chain solutions because, you know, I think it's very hard to sustain your margins if you keep a very high cost of goods sold. Yeah. So reduce the cost of goods sold. You just got to think about better ways. Um, and that often is going overseas. But again, don't do it too early, but don't do it too late. I don't know. It's not a right answer, but it's a very tricky one. Yeah. No, but I love the initial advice of like start small, you know, bite the bullet and you pay certain prices, but just start small and test and see what works and what doesn't. Like you said earlier, um, uh, you know, test fast, test quick, fail fast and and figure out what works. And if it works, double down. And if not, move on to the next thing. Um, brilliant, brilliant advice. Um, this has been so much fun to chat with you, Aaron. I would love to end the interview with the question I ask everybody at the very end. And that is, what is one thing people never ask you about working in the fashion industry that you wish they would? On this spot, I'd probably say what motivates you. You know, I, I think, I, I think you know, we all get caught up in a lot of different things depending on who you ask. And fashion, by default, you know, on the exterior, it's very glam, um, to a certain extent, kind of superficial, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, you you everything you sell can be seen. But I think often we forget about, and I don't get asked this question that often: is you know, why are you doing it? What's your end goal? And and you know. Are you serving a bigger purpose, right? And, and I just find that, you know, if you don't have that, you don't have a true north. You know, back to my earlier point about kind of our collaboration with Athleta. You know, we, we say no to a lot of, you know, even bigger brands that has approached us. We say no because it was purely a cash flow play and we didn't care much about that, right? Mm-hmm. Sure, you know, cash flow is good, but you know, we want to make sure that we're aligned from the brand standpoint. And that just goes back to a little bit in terms of like, understanding who you are so you know we 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 started a brand obviously have a clear plan business-wise and obviously from the product and merchandising design-wise have a clear roadmap but we also kind of said our true north which is what's important to you why are you doing this and for us again this varies with everyone and you just have to come up with your own answers but for us it's really kind of empowering her and and making her better you know and um and it's just her i mean you know, it's just how do we come out with a product to simplify and improve people's life? Yeah. And and so that's the, you know, we get caught up in a lot of different business stuff and fashion design, merchandising. But, do, you know, that's one thing we keep reminding ourselves from time to time to, to never forget. So I, I would say it's, it's maybe a, a more of a philosophical answer. Um, but I think it's important to keep that in mind, you know, as, as you as you. As you build your brand to not get caught up in the day-to-day, but think about a bigger picture. And it's not money, you know. I, I think a lot of people are like, well, I want to have a, you know, an empire, fashion empire. You know, it's, I, I got to tell you, in the beginning, it's very hard. You know, money, it, it's not the answer. You know, it's, it's it, it, it has to be a bigger purpose. And if you don't have that ask yourself twice whether you want to get into the industry. Yes, yes. So, so, so true. I have people ask me all the time, can I make a lot of money being a fashion designer? I'm like, oh, is that is your first question? I don't think this is right for you. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, very great answer. I love that. Um, so where can everybody find you guys online? Yep. Yeah, so our um, email, well, sorry, our address is Sport. so C A R. A-A-S-P-O-R-T, so karasport.com. Um, again, we're primarily a direct-to-consumer through our e-commerce. Um, so you can find all of our collection and our products there. Like I said before, we do work with retail partners. Um, so you can definitely check out some of our products through them. So Equinox is one of our partners. Nordstrom is another one. Um, and then we, like like you said, and like we talked about before, we do have an exclusive collection that we launch with, um, with Athleta. So if you go to athleta.com, you can also see some of our product being sold there. So, awesome. but yeah, um, you know, we are, um, we are, um, time will tell whether we will expand our retail footprint beyond e-commerce. But right now we're primarily aiming to service our community and, and customers and future customers through our e-commerce site. 
Awesome. Well, it has been so much fun to chat with you today, Aaron. Thank you so much for all the great insights and for nerding out with me on customer research and the value of that. Um, really, really lovely to interview you. I appreciate the time. No, thank you for having me. And um, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it again sometimes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Successful Fashion Designer Podcast. I appreciate each and every one of you. Again, if you know someone who you think would gain some interesting knowledge, insights, and advice from listening to one of these episodes, I would be so grateful if you would share the podcast with them. As always, if you'd like to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes at sfdnetwork.com slash 70. Thanks so much, you guys, and I'll talk to you in the next Successful Fashion Designer Podcast episode.